Hello and welcome. This time, John Deere and Dave Thomas, that's me, follow the master of suspense, the great Alfred Hitchcock, up some literal apples and pears as he turns Covent Garden Flower Market into a hotbed of murder in 1972's Frenzy. Please join us. I dare say you are wondering why I'm floating around London like this. Rivers can be very sinister places. And in my new film, Frenzy, this river, you may say, was the scene of a very horrible murder. It's a woman! Another necktie murder. Of course, one can never be sure where danger lurks. They tell me a dreadful crime was committed right in this building. My investigation next led me to this innocent alley, of which there are hundreds in London. But I don't think we should stay long. Something unpleasant is about to happen. Content and spoiler warnings. We will be spoiling the heck out of this one, and it is a doozy. So if you haven't seen it, please go away, give it a look, and then come back. Also in the course of the episode, we'll be touching on gendered violence, rape, and mental illness. So, today's episode is rather more in my wheelhouse than we would normally expect for one of these things. Yep. As it's... um, very, very British and very, very 70s. So it's Hitchcock's Frenzy. So mm. why on earth are we looking at one of the most famous British directors in a in a very British film for a podcast about Shallow? So this ties into something that I want to explore a bit in this nominal season, uh, which is kind of are folks being influenced by Jally in other places or is the same things that are influencing Barbara and Argento and Sergio Martino and all those guys just happening to be sort of dovetailing into the same kind of output. So at this point, Hitchcock's coming off the back of three or four pretty unsuccessful and not well-received movies. Uh, so post the birds, he has kind of Marnie, Topaz. Oh gosh, the one with Paul Newman, I forget the name of. Um, and you know, generally he, he's had a bit of a torrid time. This is the first film he'd done in Britain for a while, but it was definitely a reaction to what was happening in the kind of horror thriller space generally in the tail end of the 60s and the 70s. There's more violence, there's more exploitative elements stuff that he'd kind of surfaced in specifically psycho uh but like this is far and away his his most kind of graphically violent and sort of sexually explicit movie for bet for good or ill and i think we'll talk about that so the question from from my point of view that bubbles up because obviously there's a lot of hitchcock in jello is there a little bit of jello at this point filtering back into Hitchcock. Now, we don't probably specifically know, or at least I've never been able to, to find any evidence that you know he was a Dario Argento viewer or a Mario Barber viewer. He did say 
that he watched everything. He, and he was certainly influenced by other thriller makers. I mean, this has Anna Massey in it, who's in Peeping Tom. You know, we kind of generally accepted that Peeping Tom was something of an influence on him. Clouseau was an influence on him, which was an influence on other you know, Jello makers. And he'd certainly seen, and we come back to it again, but he'd certainly seen Blow Up because he talked about right. that with uh, a screenwriter who was working with Howard Fast. He said, I've just seen Michael Antonio, Michael Andrew Antonio and his Blow Up. These Italian directors are a century ahead of me in terms of technique. What have I been doing all this time? Now, a bit mm. later, so originally Frenzy was a more going to be a more kind of experimental film called Kaleidoscope which was based on the exploits of, of Neville Heath and John Hay, who were British serial killers. So the version that was going to be made then kind of morphed into Frenzy, and I think a lot of the more avant-garde elements kind of were dropped. And Hitchcock kind of then later said he actually thought Blow Up was a kind of pretentious tosh. So, I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of, again, um, uh, simpatico with with myself uh in at <laughs> some point so it's interesting to me that he's being influenced by some 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 elements some things coming out of italian cinema that's specifically going into what he was thinking about certainly in the early stages of frenzy and then frenzy is a very giallo-esque hitchcock film is is my thesis i guess because it contains a fair amount of problematic killing it does well it does contain a fair amount of problematic killing but it also has i guess well it's not like a masked killer but it is a very specific killer it's a killer with a particularly faintly ridiculous um killing method or or signature weapon which is something very jelly mm-hmm. it's got a i mean i suppose it's one of those sort of possible confluences of time and place because one of the things that marks jello out in a lot of instances is the fact that they sort of take these very city locations and make the city kind of a almost a character in the film which Hitchcock does with London which is interesting because obviously he's English but and and a Londoner but had at that point lived in the US for a long time had done the bulk of his filmmaking in the US studio system for a long time certainly since like the 1940s so it has that sort of time and place feel that I I quite associate with the Jello, and it's very stylist, stylish, and stylistic, which is obviously something that Hitchcock excelled at. But also, the things that other Jello directors either lift from him or have their own style. But it's something that that sort of permeates that that gives it a certain feel that makes it at least Jello adjacent. Fair enough. You talk before about um, this is Hitchcock after several flops mm. and one of the things i thought when i watched this because this is relatively late in hitchcock's yep. career is it covers a lot of similar ground to the lodger very much so right yeah. at the start of, of hitchcock's a story of the london fog here we are there is a sense of a very strong sense of place a very strong sense of rather like east enders everything mm. is happening with within a stone's throw from coffin garden market um there's a there's extended sequences of you know the lorry, which is almost by accident. We go out, we go outside of that. Um, but but anyway, mm. I wondered: is this Hitchcock returning to something a bit safer uh, after after some failures? I mean, what 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 are possibly the nature of the failures that thinks Hitchcock needs needs to do something radically different with his next film? Yes, a- after the birds, which of course have been a huge success, he made uh, Marnie again with uh, with. 
tippy-hedron, which was not as successful. Uh, and then Torn Curtain mm. and Topaz were both more in the espionage thriller um, slant, which obviously, again, he'd been very successful with previously. I mean, everything from saboteur to sabotage to um, north by northwest to whichever version of uh, the, the man he knew too much the first one is much much better um so it's not like he was playing in a field that he was unfamiliar with but those films just sort of didn't really resonate and i i, I wonder how much of that because of the, um uh, marnie has sean connery in it uh, and I wonder if the kind of more espionage movies he was trying to do that were more the sort of traditional Cold War stuff were kind of just not playing in the era of, you know, now you have Bond and it's all sort of much larger than life. So, yeah, whether or not it was a bit like Argento always does, whenever Argento does something that, that kind of crashes and burns, he goes and makes a jello immediately afterwards, like when... Um, he, he, his, his one attempt at a comedy didn't do well. He immediately went back and made uh, Deep Red. And then when, you know, sort of Inferno uh, burned, haha, um, he then went and did Tenebrae, you know. So it, it's sort of a, almost like a, you know, a comfy pair of, of black leather gloves. Um, so I don't know if Hitchcock was specifically wanted to do some, the, the same kind of thing. But certainly, it, you know, I mean, and it is a return to form. I mean, it, uh, for my money, it's it's with a couple of, bits that i think don't work quite so well i think it's an extraordinarily good movie yes um, it's, it's certainly hitchcock's last good movie because i don't care what anyone says family plot is fucking terrible it is it is it is it is terrible yeah yeah so so i think it is something of a, a return to safe form but then it's also not because he's doing stuff that he hadn't done before in in terms of the explicitness and also some of the graphic nature of of the, I mean, and some of the kind of graphic killing is on screen only really in one instance, but some of the stuff around, particularly as the, as the killer is attempting to either dispose of victims or in in that very memorable kind of truck sequence that you mentioned, recover something from a victim, it is more graphic mm. and and more um, body horror intense for a given value of body horror than he he'd attempted previously. I suppose one of the things that I was most surprised with um and the, the killing is problematic but it you know i think it 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 goes it's of a piece with the general tone nevertheless the two female leads are bumped off relatively quickly um mm. but it, like say psycho uh, this film has no interest in really drawing out the suspense of who the killer is no. We find out who the killer is relatively quickly. Mm. Um, and it then becomes something more interesting, which is how does John Finch avoid getting framed mm. for the for it when the killer when the killer's Barry Foster? And indeed, it kept me yes. gripped. And the only thing um that I thought let it down again is uh the trial and imprisonment are incredibly rushed. Um uh, and you know, it doesn't <laughs> yep. The case does probably doesn't stack up. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence when he's caught, but I'm mm. fairly sure like, we know there's been multiple killings beforehand. The the opening sequence has a killer. He's like, has he not got has he not got um, alibis for any of these mm. at any point? Like, there's there's no actual non circumstantial evidence that he's done any of it because we know he hasn't done any of it. Mm. So I'm not sure how watertight the watertight the prosecution's case is. It's enough to send him down. And I'd have liked maybe I was expecting something about maybe a scene involving prosecutors going like 
there isn't a huge amount we've got here and there's like pushing them for it because they really need they really need, really need this killer off the streets they really need a win with this there's pressure on the you know there's pressure on the police mm. so therefore there's pressure there's pressure on the judiciary but that doesn't that doesn't happen um yeah and then the case gets reopened and reorganized very quickly and very informally and then and then resolved and that's that that's a shame obviously with with his arguably most famous film he he has form with uh with breaking up uh the structure of a plot mm. and i would have liked to have seen say the arrest of of of, of john finch it's uh richard isn't it and mm. like to see the arrest of richard about halfway through sure and then the rest of the film uh then changes focus to um uh to, to the inspector looking looking at the case oh um the inspector by the way is you know uh, this has this has, an, this has, a, has, a, has a great cast, and um, mm. I know Alec McGowan, uh, McCowan probably best for the witches uh, as my Nigel as my yeah. as, as my Nigel Neal spot. Um, but this is this is anyway. That's I. It's it's great, and it has a huge sense of place, and it's mm. almost flawlessly acted, and it has a marvelous, marvelous, rich cast. Mm. Um, but structurally, um, I would just wanted to see the end. Breathing, it's too much going on in too short a space of time. Like like they've run out of time and they have, they have to and they have to rush it. Yes, and that's and that's a shame. Um, and with but however, especially I think what's most lost from that the rushed the rushed last act that if you could have drawn that out, you've had sort of. Um, uh, a taste of what of, of what that could be like with the inspector coming home and uh, his wife, who's played by Vivian Merchant, um, Harold Pinter's ex ex wife, and she steals the film. Uh, and she's only got a relatively minor role. She only ever appears in one recording block. She's only ever met, and she has a thing, which is making exotic food that her husband hates, who wants really <laughs> boring, uh, stodgy but reliable. English English food, which is a running joke that works that works incredibly well, um, and it's a thing that you see occasionally in films, particularly with the cop. I'm thinking also, I'm thinking of the Quatermass Experiment, mm. uh, where you have Jack Warner's wife, who's always trying to give him something as he's about to leave. There's just like a running, just like a running. There's a family touch uh, to that as well, um, but it adds color to those sequences, and it's um, it's Vivian Merchant, Mrs. Oxford's character that. Um, that is right all along that there's no way he could have done it she's saying what the viewers does what the viewer is saying mm. um but the inspector isn't particularly isn't isn't, isn't particularly interested in finding out mm. so yeah that's that's something i thought was could have been could have been could have been could have been drawn out better i see why it, why it spends the majority of the time and the big climax of well the false climax of finding you know finding uh, uh richard guilty and then having the but we need to clear his name. It's just there isn't long enough, both in time scale and in viewer experience, to get a, to get a, a prosecution, a trial, a conviction, a case reopened, and then just get the and then just get the trial. Getting a trial quashed isn't that simple. Mm. Um, he's been found guilty by a jury. Like the best you might have to do also is a reach, but to overturn the decision, like it, it's it's not so simple to overturn the the, the verdict of a jury. Mm. That's sort of the point of a jury. Um, you can't just say no. There's this piece of evidence. Oh, we'll overturn that. that that's not. You can do a retrial uh, when you when new evidence comes to light. Um, but it's 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 yeah. It's um, it's a bit quick that mm. one. 
It's not as bad as the end of The Untouchables <laughs> when the entire court system goes out the window and they find him guilty. And it's like, no, you need, you need, you, you need to start the trial again. You, like, you can't just do that. Mm. Like this one, one person's been corrupted. I mean, the jury, the jury needs to I, be replaced. I, I don't anyway. know how much of it is like Hitchcock had, you know, had an absolute dire time with the paradigm case and deservedly so because that film is un- almost unwatchable um so he was just like i don't want to do any more courtroom stuff like he's convicted it's fine we'll just get back to the, the mystery and it does have that wonderful final line you seem to have forgotten your tie it's i love that yes it has it has an abrupt ending doesn't it and, and that is also very jello that that kind of like yeah we found the real killer the movie's over yeah indeed there's no there's no breathing space after that and it has the one brilliant brilliant bit where the inspector right you know, when richard go when richard goes into the 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 flat of robert who is who is the killer played by Barry Foster. And he's Barry, Barry Foster's brilliant. Mm. Although he disconcerted, he looks a lot like John Pertwee throughout this. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? And John Pertwee's then wife is also in this. Anyway, um, you know he's not in the bed and he's going up to kill him in the bed. You know he's not in the bed and then he realises, and I thought it was going to be a dummy. I thought he knew, like he'd found out he'd escaped and laid a trap. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a dead woman. And then he overturns it and he's got this thing in his hand and then the inspector walks in and it's absolutely it's not what it looks like i promise you oh, uh, and i i almost wanted it to end on that and it's like um but you can't you can't and then robert has to walk in uh and then go oh god damn how what how unlucky i should have locked the fucking door i should have secured the door a bit better if only I wasn't carrying this large, incriminating trunk. Q credits. Yes, yeah, it does have a very abrupt ending. And it has um, it has a very simple plot. It's quite a character piece in that it shows quite a lot of the lives um, of the people who work, inhabit the the space that is the, the, the is, is Coffee Garden. And in some places, that's really colourful. Like you have Bernard Cribbins playing a prick, which is interesting. Mm. It's it's not comedy fun. Uh, granddad Bern, Bernard Cribbins. It's slightly creepy wanker Bernard Cribbins, um, who is an underrated actor because he generally got um, generally got shunted into more friendly roles. But he gets to he gets to show a bit of range there. But in other places where the plot then mm. specifically needs. Things to happen to 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 John Finch or places John Finch to hide out. You have characters like Billy Whitelaw, who's absolutely wasted in a dead end role mm. with nothing, and to just basically act as a foil for Clive Swift. And that's not really a pairing I've ever thought of. Clive Swift, Clive Swift, and and, and Billy Whitelaw. Um, <laughs> but, but but Billy Whitelaw sort of deserves deserves more than that because there's no real there's no real point to the role. And even like Vivian Merchant, uh, who has probably a similar amount of screen time, but steals the film because one, she's got a thing and there's a bit of comedy going on there. And she quietly undercuts mm. all the police work by getting it right long before, long before they do. With Billy Whitelaw, her role there is to just, is to just hate John Finch, even when it's screamingly obvious that John Finch didn't break out of the house while no one noticed, kill someone and then be back in the bed quickly. And while no one noticed in about three hours, um, mm. It doesn't make sense, mm. um, but no one sort of believes, and that's and that sort of. I, I wanted more. 
I wanted Billy Whitelaw to be able to do, but it's not Billy Whitelaw's fault. Uh, it's just a bit of a dead end role. But the two main women yeah. Barbara is Barbara Lee Hunt as the ex wife, um, uh, who has that sort of beautiful framing technique because, like, he John Finch plays you know a slight uh, down and out um, in a dead end job as a barman who gets who gets fired. He's got a, probably a bit of a, he's got a bit of a drink problem, but we know he was a World War Two pilot and was brave and has had a fall from grace. While his ex wife is now very very successful, and this sort of funny emasculating power, power dynamics which anger him as part of the false framing for he's a, he's an angry man. He might kill his wife, uh, and just when you're getting to think, oh, Bob. <laughs> Barbara Lee Hunt's character is Brenda, isn't it? Um, I wonder where this is going. Mm. Uh, Barry Foster kills her horribly and like really, really horrible. It's a long scene of him just coming in. Uh, it's a scene that lovely. It's oh god, oh lovely. Lo- and like she like in the end, it comes from leave me alone to like I won't struggle, please. Like I don't rip, don't rip my clothes. As you know, he she know she knows she's going to be raped. And she can't get out of it, and she doesn't want to be hit, so she submits, um, and she turns away, almost looking at the camera, and starts reciting a prayer, while he rapes her, going "lovely, lovely," and that's possibly one of the most horrible things in a in a, in a British film. Caveat: British film. Uh, I've 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 ever seen that was genuinely genuinely upsetting and then you know that even though she's she he's going to kill her because she knows who he is she's familiar with who he is and i appreciate once again we seem to have gone down this side road of um people who people who have kinks are deadly we've went down that bit in the last episode well that's also um, very jello um and the secretary played by played by Gene Marsh said we told him to go away. He had a he had a particular thing, as if you know it's a dating agency in the nineteen seventies. You would let us go in. Basically, I've got a fetish for strangling women. Can you put me up with a woman who likes to be strangled? That's probably not how um, how it, how such conversation would go. But nevertheless, the framing of <laughs> p- people who have a kink are psychopathic killers, rapers, and murderers. Like they're literally perverted. Um, which is a bit of a shame, mm. uh, as, as a, a bit problematic now. How you would how you would say that, but nevertheless, um, ev- that performance and, and and that scene is deeply, deeply horrible. And if and on watching it, like is this problematic? But it's so horrible that um, you can't tear yourself away from the power of of well, if if it changes, it sort of almost changes the uh, the dynamic of the film to be something you know, you wouldn't call this a horror film. Um, but it, that that is that that scared me and revolted me more than anything in a that I probably have seen in a in a horror. And it's superbly done and it's superbly performed, uh, but it's horribly, horribly, horribly disturbing. Um, to the extent that when Anna Massey's character, who plays sort of the girlfriend, uh, and you and you see it coming, you then don't need to show anything. And that contrasting that with Anamasi, who was killed off screen, yeah. as they go into a room and then the camera just holds and then pulls out. And there's, there's two points in this film where the camera work is so subtle and so brilliant. The first is where Anamasi is killed and she's just and the camera then just pulls out out of the shop, out of the, the the doorway onto the streets of, of the streets of Covent Garden, and having witnessed what happened to Barbara Lee Hunt, you don't need to see what's happening to Anna Massey. You know what's happening to Anna Massey, and it's just showing that life is going on while this happens as well. And the second, which is actually sorry, 
uh, first chronologically in uh, in screen time is when Richard um, goes to meet goes to meet Barbara Hunt, but the door's locked and comes um, and then leaves, and then Jean Marsh's character um, goes in, uh, and you know she's going to find Brenda's body, and the camera just stays there, and it just stays there, and it stays there. For a, and it seems probably longer than it, than it than it actually is, but it's a good while that there's just a static shot of people walking past, and then you hear you hear um, Jean Marsh scream, and she finds the body, and it's having the patience to just get to just your mind is now doing the work off screen, um, which given you know there's quite a lot of show and tell in in other in other Hitchcock films, this is beautiful suspense. And you know, like both with the, you know what she's seeing, or you know how she's dying, um, and it's it's masterful, masterful camera work and masterful suspense in those two bits. Yeah, and Anna Massey's death is the one that I think is really, really affecting because she's such a. I mean, it, it's not a a particularly interesting character. You know, she's a barmaid who works at the pub that uh, Dick Richards also worked out they have a relationship um she, she seems to be very kind of conscious of exactly the sort of person he is that he's a bit of a, a waster and you know sort of letting himself down but she does have a genuine affection for him and, and is nothing but um you know sort of somewhat guileless i guess but you know she's sort of always pretty much believes in in him she never kind of succumbs to everyone you know because uh bernard cribbins's character is you say, well, he, you know, he must have done it, you know, all of that. But then clearly he's also got designs on her um, and she's mm-hmm. standing up for him to uh, Billy Whitelaw and, and uh, Clive Swift, etc. Um, so she's just this very kind of nice, genuine character. And actually when she dies, it, for me, that was kind of the biggest sort of wrench in the film because you, you can see it coming. And the way, as you said, they set it up because at this point, Barry Foster's character, Robert Bob is so duplicitous and is oh well you know I'll look after her while you etc um and as they're walking there's that spectacular shot of the two of them kind of she walks out of the pub and there's just that kind of push in and the sound completely drops out and then pulls out again and Barry Foster's standing behind her uh and then they kind of have this oh you know why don't you come back to my place and then of course you know, as they're going through this long extended walk through Covent Garden, what's going to happen. And then, as you say, they go up the stairs into his flat and he says, you know, the, the, the call back to the earlier murder scene where he says, you're my kind of, my kind mm. of woman or whatever, whatever he says. And you know, as you said, you know exactly what's going to happen. And I found that, I, I found that really disturbing, sort of almost more so than the, the other scene because that character is such a, is such a kind of heart of the film. And, and something that I thought was very clever in, in retrospect, watching it again this time is, um, when uh, her character uh, Babs, is, you know, Cockney barmaid Babs, when she comes and meets uh, John Finch outside the Odeon Leicester Square, when you could still drive <laughs> around it, which was rather marvellous. Um, <laughs> uh, and she's wearing this sort of orange uh, kind of jacket skirt outfit, which 
very effectively he's like sort of oh it's you know it's a nice outfit that if you were sort of a someone working class you might have you know you'd put it on for best if you were going to meet you know your guy or you're going on a date so it's like the, you know it, it, it seems like a an outfit that fits within the plot quite naturally but is also distinctive enough that when they keep returning to her body because while you don't see her murder her body does then feature heavily subsequently in the film for this kind of extended sequence that it's really it's a real um signifier you know it's, it's blindly like this orange outfit is blindingly obvious that that as a you know it's not something you can miss it, it's really it's beautifully constructed it is and the scene where he um realizes he's left is it his his tie pin isn't it um it well she's she clawed at his tie yes. pin apparently when she died and she still has it um so he has to retrieve hit the incriminating evidence from her body who he's chucked to the back of a lorry containing potatoes only as he goes to search the body for it, the truck drives off and he's now on the way to wherever. Um, and it's almost comedy. Um, it's played almost like it's a comedy because you have bits of like, you know, there's a foot oh, like a uh, foot coming up in his face when he's trying to find, like, actually reach the body or potatoes are falling out of the back and someone's stopping and then saying, you've got potatoes falling out, mate. And it's, oh, comedy, is he going to get found? And it's like, it's, it's reminiscent of things like the episode of Dad's Army where they like they think they've rode across accidentally rode across the channel or drifted across the channel and they have to get back from occupied France to home. And it's just like, how are we gonna get out of this one? Well, I don't know, it's comedy and exciting, isn't it? Only he's got a you know, the, the woman he's just murdered horribly. Um and he's trying to get out, get out of incriminating evidence. But it's done in a it's done with a slight incompetence. Um, and everything you've seen about you've seen about uh, Robert so far is um, he's a monster. He's very charming, the classic psychopath. But when you see at that moment that he's actually like often in, qu- quite incompetent, um, it gives you again a different a different slant uh, on 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 his character. He's shown mm. to be funny. He's shown to be affable. He's shown to be personable, which is how you get to you know how he can invade his way into confidence. He's shown to, you know, be like, you know, mm. a, psych- a, yeah, a murdering psychopathic sex- sex- sexual sexual deviant and the, you know, the haunting of lovely. Uh, it really, really gets you. And he's shown to be, you know, quite panicky and a bit shit because he's, um, and there's all these things about not in the, not in a classic, kill, not in the classic killer way that you would often present that. Um, in Psycho, Norman Bates is quite straight as a character. Um, he has a plan. He sticks to it, and that's his. Uh, and you see where his focus and his mo- and his mo- and his motivation is there. Uh, Robert is far more is far more complex uh, and far more interesting. I think because of that, it's it's a really really interesting performance. Mm-hmm. You don't see killers like that. I think given as much screen time and as much character development when they're when they're entirely the 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 antagonist barry foster is a fantastic actor he really mm. is and that's and that's magnificent i just didn't keep wish I was, and i kept thinking what would john pertwee do playing 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 this role as it quite looks like john <laughs> i mean it's it's a fascinating piece of 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 cinema and particularly the the as, as a document of london and that very early 70s i mean the opening shot 
is amusing yeah. because they even open it with like a big crest that has you know London you know almost like a tourist travelogue and you can see as they they sort of do a, a push in and it sort of it, it's a it's an aerial shot that's kind of actually um, cut together from two separate sections but they kind of go in through Tower Bridge and you can see mm. um, the old Bankside Power Station like pouring out you know coal smoke which obviously now. Um, the Tate Gallery, uh, but but then you know sort of and, and there's pollution sort of coating everything because at this point you know Battersea would still have been operating and basically everything is is you know belching out fumes and County Hall is covered in grime and mm. um, so it's that, that that kind of seventies London thing which is fascinating again because it's still you know a government seat not the kind of horrible tourist you know sort of attraction that it is today that, that you know the, the south bank of london that, that you and i know is basically sort of thronged with day trippers um <laughs> as opposed to sort of extras looking at a body floating in the river as as they are in the film alongside but they're not his, then, uh, his inevitable cameo but uh, they're not just extras uh doreen mantle uh mrs warboys <laughs> from from what from one foot in the grave uh, can be can be can be, can be spotted. Um, Joby Blanchard, uh, Colin Blakeney from Doomwatch, uh, I, I saw as well, and it's full of people who are not credited or either not credited or uh, extras, basically. With you know, even and even if they have lines, they're not pretty. Michael Sheard uh, in the pub, Roy Skelton. Um, uh, is uh, one of the one of the CID officers, voice of the Dalek Cybermen, Zippy and George. I counted two, two people from the Doctor Who, the Doctor Who serial Pyramids of Mars. Uh, in this, Mister Salt uh, is um, Ernie. The, uh, and if you've seen Pyramids of Mars, Ernie the poacher who gets smothered, crushed to death by two robot mummies, and the um, foreman of the jury, glimpsed glimpsed very briefly, is Michael Bilton. Uh, who's in several Doctor Who stories, including Pyramids of Mars. But you may remember him best for a Yellow Pages advert. Do you remember the one where um, there's an old gardener and they get him and they you, and they get the Yellow Pages and they think they get you think they're going to sack him, uh, but what they do instead is they get him a motorized uh, mower. Do you remember that? I have a vague recollection of that. It's it's not up there with um fly fishing or the the, the yeah, one with okay, the train set but it, it has it, it's a vague recollection anyway that's him it does have some yeah. fascinating sort of bit uh bit players and 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 smaller roles. i guess everyone was just like do you want to be in an alfred hitchcock film and like you you're unlikely yeah, to say exactly. no i think there's some fascinating behind the scenes footage right? if you've ever seen um that there is some kind of b-roll of of hitchcock actually directing this um specifically around the sequence at county hall no no i haven't that sounds fascinating yeah i'll see if i can try find it it's, it's on a dvd somewhere uh and so he's basically he he sent like the second ad or whoever to kind of corral all the the spectators because the opening shot eventually pans into um someone talking about how they're going to clean up the thames from pollution i don't know why that seems 
timely at the moment. Mm. Um, and, and, and there's a big crowd of, of onlookers, you know, sort of clapping politely. And, and in, the, in the shot, this is where Hitchcock is, is also kind of sequestered. And then a body shows up in the river and with a tie, uh, naked apart from a tie around its neck. And basically, you know, there's cries of like, he's done another one, you know, all of this, because the, mm-hmm. the, there is a man killing women with, uh, by strangling them with, with ties. But the, the behind the scenes stuff is so Hitchcock's, basically sitting around the corner behind County Hall, presumably where that sort of parade of restaurants is now, um, in, a, in his Rolls Royce, smoking a big cigar because he's, you know, Hitchcock, basically waiting for the second AD to just, like, go and get everyone into position. And he sort of comes back and says, uh, well, sir, um, you know, we sort of, right, uh, yeah, well, could you, I won't try and do the voice. Um, could you make sure that they're all doing this, this and this? Yep, yep, goes away, comes back. So I think they're ready, sir. So then he gets out of his roles, kind of saunters around to the thing, does a quick action, they shoot it. It's like, right, get everyone back where they were. He goes back, sits in the car again, and basically that's how he's directing. So he's basically <laughs> just sitting in his roles, waiting for everything to be set up, and then occasionally coming out and shouting action and then going back again. Amazing. <laughs> it's delightful. Other people to look out for, because I'd very rarely get a chance to do this. I'm normally just saying, who's this guy? What else has he, what else has he been in? Other people to look out for is Michael Bates. <laughs> as the, Michael Bates is the sergeant. Um, he's in... Probably be- he's probably best known for The Last of the Summer Wine as one of the original cast members, but I'll always know him for The, so- the Stone Tape. Uh, Madge Ryan is Mrs. Davidson. She's in mm. Beasts. Gene um, Marsh, as I talked about, famous from Upstairs, Downstairs and Doctor Who, and at this time was uh, married to John Pertwee. And there are numerous, as I think I've already they talked about as well, you know, people, like jo- people like John Cater and Terence Connolly um, that you can see in as well. We haven't mentioned, actually, the... Um, the scriptwriter. So it's right at the beginning of his career, but it's Anthony Schaefer, isn't it? In, it, in, it is indeed. And and I think the script is, apart from, you know, maybe some structural issues, is, is one of the great strengths because the dialogue is, uh, is, is mesmerising. It is. It's extremely good as well. Characterization is is very strong, and yes, it helps that they have a very, very, very good cast. But it is it it is an extremely good, extremely good script. I mean, I think he'd only he'd only done, um, Mister Frobisher meets the Penguin or Mister Frobisher and the Penguins um, at this point. Which, if you haven't seen uh, John Hurt uh, in the Antarctic, it's delightful and, and do. But it's quite a difference. I mean, there's this. He after this, he does Sleuth which probably in any other career might be the script he's best remembered for. Um, but because of how things turned out, it's the one after that where he writes, he writes, he absolutely writes and doesn't just direct and do all the good things about the film uh, of The Wicker Man. Um, he absolutely didn't really direct <laughs> it, really direct it because Robin Hardy couldn't direct piss into a ten foot trough. Um, <laughs> at this stage of this is very early, very early his career. But over the next sort of five years, he'll have a stellar thing. I mean, okay, The Wicker Man is now a cult classic. It was hardly hardly rippled at the time, but nevertheless, Sleuth. And then he goes on to the um, the Sydney Lumet Agatha Christie stories, doesn't he? Um, from that, so it's. Um, Again, not a not not a million miles from a from a who done it a murder mystery. Uh, okay, slap slap bang in the middle. You've got you've got you've got the world's most famous folk horror uh, tale. Um, but 
but but, <laughs> but 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 nevertheless, a start of a a start a start of a, a start of a glittering career. And I didn't realise he wrote this until I, until I watched it, and I I lit up with anticipation and excitement. Mm. This is a very a very good film, which just has I think structural problems with the ending the ending too rushed. But yes, I did like the absolute the last scene being so being so abrupt. Uh, you've you're not wearing your tie. Few credits. Like there's 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 got to be some closure. No no closure. No closure. We've run out. We've run out of time. I do. I do very much like how. And again, this is me kind of looking for connective tissue necessarily more than it may actually be there. Uh, but certainly the way the, the, there's various scenes of people discussing the uh, the the. The tie killer. I forget the. Is that if you call him the tie killer? No, he does have a uh, the necktie murder. Necktie murders. That's it. But there's a couple of scenes. So there's one early on, and John Finch goes into a pub, and there's a, a barrister and a uh, and a forensic oh, right. scientist at oh, the so bar discussing. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, possibly a journal or something. Yeah. 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 Um, but the the way they talk about it is very much in in those kind of jello terms of you know oh. Oh, I must be a sex maniac then. Well, you know what they say about that. You know, it's that very um, offhand. There's something that that, you, that happens very much in, you know, as soon as the police come in in a jello and say, oh, she's been killed, we're looking for a total pervert. You know, there's, yeah. there's, no, um, there's no kind of subtlety or, or indeed thought that really goes into it. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I mean, they don't quite go in, in in the same lengths in this as they do in you know, right? Round up all the perverts and get them in a lineup because it's probably one of them, <laughs> you know, as they uh, the whole kind of uh, blood and black lace thing. But it's not it's not a million miles from that. You've put one of the homosexuals in with the paedophiles. Oh no, no! If I have to do that, oh god, sorry, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. And and that's, but the other thing is, I suppose you know it, it is as you said, you know it it harks back to the lodger. You know Hitchcock was the master of um, of that whole. Someone's accused of a crime; they're being pursued for the crime while at the same time trying to prove that they themselves are innocent. Obviously, that's a big Jello trope, but that's because people were ripping off Hitchcock. So you know <laughs> it, 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 it's sort of a that's a bit of a what goes around comes around but i think ultimately you know if, if you're going to say which is the hitchcock that's a, that's most like a jello I, I think it's this one it is one of those lovely casts where everyone's been in lots of other things that are cool and, and also interestingly quite adjacent to to hitchcock things because i was looking at what everyone had done and it's like barry foster was in um a tv uh TV adaptation of The Three Hostages, which is another Richard Hannay, and obviously Hitchcock had famously done um, The 39 Steps. Um, mm-hmm. and that, So the TV version was directed by Clive Donner, who also did a ton of other cool mm-hmm. stuff. Um, John Finch, who was actually in the SAS, which I, which was uh, quite impressive. So he's sort of mm, very committed. And he plays a real shit, which is, you know, quite nice as in, in the hero. It's that, it, you know, he's a shit and the killer is very affable. It's it's a nice kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, make, make you, it's a bit make you think. But of course, he's in The Vampire Lovers and Horror of Frankenstein for... for uh, he's in, he's, he's Polanski's Macbeth as well, isn't he? Yes, he'd just done that when this, uh, when he starred in this. It hadn't come out yet, but uh, so, oh. so yeah, he kind of had Macbeth and this in short order, which must have been quite an interesting kind of career moment. Um, 
and also a couple of Hammer films, though not not at Hammer's peak. Uh, and he's in on he's in Death on the Nile, the seventy eight one. So, which I think was written by Schaefer. It was indeed, yeah. And then you know Billy Whitelaw, obviously, you know national treasure Billy Whitelaw, but fleshing the fiends with with uh, Peter Cushing, which is uh, excellent uh, about uh, Burke and Hare. Um, it's really interesting stuff about Burke and Hare, but it's not that podcast. Uh, the the Omen, of course. Uh, this is Baylock in the Omen, uh, which I think is probably the first thing that I ever saw her in. Um, so we'll always have a soft spot for that. Augur in the Dark Crystal, um, and an episode of Space 1999, because wasn't everyone in an episode of Space 1999 in like 75, 76? Point about, point about her in the Omen. Uh, she also appears uh, in an episode of ITV uh, 60s anthology series, Espionage, where she plays um, the wife of her Omen co-star, Patrick Troughton. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Double wow. Andrew Keir is also in that episode. So it's a story about Doctor Who and Quatermass fighting for control of the IRA. <laughs> Amazing. I need to see that. Directed by David Green, who did I Start, who did I Start Counting. And, and The Shuttered Room. It's, stop selling. I'm buying it. Sorry. Yes, <laughs> Oh, one thing, sorry, we haven't mentioned for John Finch. He's in the final programme, which is one of my favourite films. It's utter batshit. It's up there with Psychomania for utterly insane film that's that's utterly wonderful at the same time. Watch. And it has a brilliant fight sequence, which is sort of like this James Bond film, where it's like cool fight, cool John Finch, James Bond type, fighting a bad guy, and then him getting hit and going, oh, you bugger! In the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, good times. Yeah. And of course, Anna Massey came from Peeping Tom, yeah. which we, we, you know, Hitchcock, I think, sort of admitted was a was an influence. Um, she's also in Bunny Lake is, is Missing, is. Uh, which is the best Hitchcock film directed by Otto Preminger. Uh, it's a fantastic film. Later this year, she will appear in the final episode of Dead of Night series, uh, A Woman Sobbing, written by, written by John Bowen, which is heavily influenced by The Yellow Wallpaper. She plays a housewife. She plays a housewife who can hear a woman sobbing in her attic, but no one, no one else can. And it's about, it's about you know, female psychology and loneliness and and the the disempowerment of people and housewives of this as well. Very, very good. Um, worth pointing out the first episode of that of that series, the quite famous, probably the most famous uh, episode there is, the Exorcism. Uh, features Clive Swift. Yeah, the, the the endless the endless connections of of chaos like this are fascinating because of you know Animasi's also in Vault of Horror, she is, yeah, yes. film with everybody, uh, including Tom Tom she Baker's is, in yes. that one. Uh, so another Doctor Who spot, and then she was in a, the the seventy nine TV version of Rebecca. How, you know, going back to Hitchcock oh, right, okay. as uh, Mrs. Danvers. That was the version that had Jeremy Brett, who of course Sherlock Holmes. Gosh, um, and was a ba- baddie in the. Uh, second horrendous series of Battlestar Galactica. So, God, yes, that's right. I'd forgotten that. We are just delving into. We're basically we, we, we're basically getting our like you know, connection dicks out, aren't we? Right? And who we can who we can spot and who we can just demonstrate as the biggest. <laughs> I think you'll find it, it's like I, I don't know what the, the 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 British version of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon is. I don't know Six Degrees of 
Keith Chegwin or something. <laughs> I'm just thinking who who the um, the the equivalent would be. R- Ronald Pickup. There you are, Ron Pickup. He's in fucking everything from the mid sixties to the mid to, to the mid noughties. Ron Pick <laughs> Ronald Pickup is in fucking everything. There, six degrees of Ron Pickup. There we go. That's you can. Get, I, I'm calling it here. You can get from every post-war actor <laughs> in Britain uh, to Ron Pickup in six. Uh, there you go. I'm cool. I, I've not tried it, but that's what that's what that's <laughs> that's what I'm going with. Only died, only, only, and he only died very recently. Anyway, well, it's, so it's, it's been a mildly um, frustrating, unconventional episode. Generally, it, it, it has. <laughs> Hopefully, you can fix on the edit. Um, where are we going next? Uh, I'm sorry, we're back in Italy, so uh, we are going to be doing um, a much more pithily titled Jello than usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are doing Amok. That's it. That's that's the name of the film. Sorry, Amok. Amok As in, right. if you're a Warner Brothers uh, Looney T- right Looney Tunes fan, as in Duck Amok, but th- this one's got Barbara Boucher in it instead. Great. Certainly look forward to that. Where sadly I will not be able to find um, every actor in this to within six degrees of of Ron Pickup. I cannot list Nigel Neal and adjacent productions they were in in the 1970s. There will be no one from the Doctor Who serial pyramids of Mars. Or will there? Farley Granger's in it, so I don't know if that helps. Farley Granger? Oh, God. I'm not going to work this out now. We'll 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 come we'll come on to this. We'll come we'll come on to we'll come on to we'll come on to this next week. Um, until next time, you seem to have lost your tie. Thank you for listening. Next time, we're very much back in the Jallo world with Jallo queens Barbara Boucher and Rosalba Neri as they run amok. Please join us. Goodbye. Lovely. 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 Mr. Rusk, you're not wearing your tie.